Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Michael Kane's assistant editor at the TLS is here with me. Hello, Michael. Hello, Alex. How are you? I'm all right. Now, Lucy is on her holidays this week, isn't it? Yes, Uh, I'm afraid she is, enjoying herself or something. Enjoying herself. And, And you see, she and I normally have a slightly anguished conversation about what's happening to plants in our gardens. I'm oh, going to have to ask I, I know, you. I know, I yeah. know. I'm, I'm following the garden chat as the best garden I can. Chat. Are you, do you want to be in the garden chat? No, I do Are not you want a gardener? to be, I, just, you... I just want to monitor the garden chat from a safe distance, maybe maybe a few hundred miles away. <laughs> that, that kind of distance. Just a safe well, distance. But Michael, as well as editing this week's TLS, coming to talk about it on the podcast, you are also in it, aren't you? You've written in it this week. You've written about King Lear, tell us a bit about that. Yes, I'm afraid I have written about King Lear. I went to see uh, Catherine Hunter play King Lear at Shakespeare's Globe uh, the other week. And I can only say that she was rather magnificent, rather mesmerising. She's played the role before, about 25 years ago, I think, in Leicester and at the Young Vic. And the, the, the kind of way she played the role wasn't completely dissimilar but everything around her in a way was completely different because of course it's Shakespeare's globe and so you know you have King Lear accompanied by helicopters and King Lear accompanied by party music going on just down the river and all that kind of business but the other thing that I thought was really striking about this Lear is how in a way it's been quite beset it's been quite unlucky Um, the director was in a car crash a couple of weeks before 
the show opens. So he, she hasn't been able to uh, direct the show during that time. And then subsequently, I found out that at least four of the cast went down with the COVID. So they had cancelled performances as well. And that and a few other things made me think that they are really up against it. It's one of those productions when you, you realise it's really a kind of a miracle when it, something like this gets put on at all. It's such a bloody struggle sometimes. And it did have many, many good points. I, I, I really enjoyed it. It got some quite um, mixed reviews, I think, because the production is quite uneven as a whole. Conceptually, it's quite uneven. But actually, I thought that she was just um, so wonderful and so different from the other layers that I've seen. I, I think I'm, this might be my sixth, I'm not sure, in the theatre. And certainly, I haven't seen it done the Catherine Hunter way before. I mean, she is an amazingly gifted actor, isn't she? And when I say, I mean, she's innovative. She's most recently been in the tragedy of Macbeth, the Cohen film, playing all three of the witches, hasn't she? Yes, and I think this um, playing of male parts has made something of a speciality, going back, you know, to early kind of complicity days at least. Mm. Uh, and she says that, uh, I found an interview where she said that she became really obsessed with Lear when she was about 14 years old. And she could relate as a 14-year-old to Lear's kind of obstinacy and his temper tantrums and uh, difficulty with family, shall we say. <laughs> Can I call it that? <laughs> anyway, so I think she's, she's really a very, yeah, interesting and powerful, mercurial kind of performer, obviously very, very distinctive. And so it's always interesting to see what she'll do, whether the production around her is actually any good or not. It's just interesting, I find, watching her on stage. Well, thank you for telling us about it, Michael. And, and of course, we can read even more detailed review in this week's paper. Meanwhile, coming up on this week's show, it's that time of the year again. Sweaty men in lycra, fearsome feuds, a blood-curdling race to the finish. But enough of the TLS's summer party. We're talking about the Tour de France and a book that takes us back to the early days of the world's most famous cycling race and the subsequent battles for control over it. We'll be joined by Simon Cooper to talk about all things velocipedic. And that segment is here to take us into the strange world of London's ultra-rich. But first, we're taking a closer look at one of the sporting calendar's greatest fixtures, the Tour de France. The 118-year-old road race so gruelling that it defies belief. From Eddie Merckx, Bernard Eno and Miguel Andrin to Alberto Contador and Bradley Wiggins, it's made stars out of those who've not only survived but thrived its intensity. But it's also been marked by controversy. Alex Duff's Le Freak Family, Power and Money, the business of the Tour de France, gives us the inside story on the battle for control of the race over the decades. Simon Cooper has reviewed the book for this week's paper and has dropped back from La Tête de la Course to talk to Michael and me, the domestique bringing up the rear. Welcome, Simon. Hi. You are really renowned, especially for writing about football, aren't you? I have tried to move away from football out of my ghetto, and I've written a couple of books about nothing to do with sport in the last couple of years, but uh, people still say I'm a football writer, yes. I think maybe I'm thinking of your wonderful book about Ajax, and that that is particularly stuck in my mind. But I know that you've most recently uh, written a book about, well, how a small cadre of the Tory elite have taken over the country, basically. Is that about right? Yeah, and how Oxford made them. Just a quick plug, the book is called Chums in All Good Bookshops and it's unmissable. It is unmissable, but 
back to the Tour de France. I am a big fan. And I was just, I was telling Michael before we started today that a couple of years ago, I drove a significant way across France to be able to, to see it, uh, to see a stage of it. The thing about the Tour de France is it is so much sort of of the people. You don't need a ticket. You can just rock up in a small town. And I noted when I did that, it has what you, you remark upon as the sort of combination of village fete and this kind of celebration of La France Profonde. And it was a tremendously kind of community affair. And one of the things that I found really moving was that it was a very hot day and there was a little sort of tented area with plastic seats sat down where just the old people from the village could sit, everybody else getting stuck into pizzas and beer and all the rest of it. And of course the race goes by in a second, but that's enough of my tourism. That contrasts with the sort of business part of it. And that's what Alex Duff's book is really about, isn't it? Yeah, it's about the business of the tour, and specifically the French family, the Omori family that owns it, mm. and how they've resisted selling it for, well, nearly 80 years now, since the end of the Second World War. Even though, the, of course, the Anglo-Saxon are always trying to buy anything French that has global appeal, like the tour. And there was a turning point, as the book describes, and you report to us, uh, just just after the Second World War, wasn't there? Will you just tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the Tour de France is created by the newspaper Lotto, which is a kind of early sports newspaper. And during the uh, tour, you know, it covers it and sales of newspapers soar. And this is owned by the quite posh Parisian Godet family. But then during the occupation, like all newspapers, the uh, Lotto is taken over essentially by the Nazis, becomes a Lotto soldat and publishes mostly Nazi propaganda. So in 1944, when, when France is liberated, the Godet family is in very bad odor with the new governing uh, de Gaulle uh, clan. And uh, the Gaullists don't want any people who collaborated with the Nazis in World War II to stay in the media. And so Godet has a problem and he goes to this very important figure in the book, Emilien Amory, who uh, started off a poor boy from the provinces who comes to Paris, works as a plongeur like Orwell, you know, washing dishes in a restaurant, mm. um, meets a media mogul, uh, is sort of adopted by him as another son, uh, gets into the media. And during World War II, like many people in France, Amory plays both sides. So he's in advertising now and he makes kind of propaganda for the VC regime, gets paid a lot for the, um, you know, putting out their disgusting propaganda. But at the same time, at night, his presses uh, secretly published de Gaulle's speeches from abroad and other resistance propaganda. And of course, when World War II ends, he gives a scrapbook to de Gaulle of all the de Gaulle speeches that Amory published during the war clandestinely. And he uh, presents himself as a grand résistant. And this narrative is accepted so much so that Amory in 1944 is put in charge of creating a new French media that will be, uh, have no Nazi connections and will broadly sympathize with, with the new Gaullist project. And in fact, 27 million francs in the, the wonderful opening scene of the book, 27 million francs is delivered by a cyclist to Amory and streets still occupied by German soldiers in, in summer 1944 as they prepare to create the post-liberation press. 
And uh, this 27 million actually printed in the United States because that's where French money was being printed at the time. And Amory uses this to start a media empire. And one thing he does, you know, it's become known, this is where we get to the Tour de France, it's becoming known that Amory is the guy to go to if you want to get something done in French media as the war ends. So Jacques Godet, owner of L'Auto, goes to meet Amory in the Champs-Élysées in Amory's office. Amory immediately establishes the power relationship between them by asking to borrow Godet's bicycle. And of course, Godet says yes, and a bicycle is worth a lot, you know, in Paris in late August 1944, it's around this time. And then they do a deal. Amory is going to go to um, the new regime and say, you know, Godet is not so bad. He didn't actually run, uh, organize the tour during the war, give him another chance. And in exchange, Godet will give Amory some of his properties, including a half share in the Tour de France. And so this is where the Amory family gets its mitts on the tour, you know, in the very messy aftermath of World War II. So there's an element of kind of sport washing in this. And there's also an element of trying to create a big business empire on the back of a sporting event. Is that right? There is sports washing. Yeah. The tour itself is not worth that much money. It loses money at this time. There's no television rights yet. Mm. As you've said, the spectators don't pay any money. So there's no business model, but the tour supports newspapers because when the tour runs, people buy a lot more sports newspapers. And so that's good for Loto, which after the war is renamed L'Equipe, still going, staggering on to this day. You know, so L'Equipe uh, has this collaboration as passed, but is whitewashed. So it's not quite like the Qatari projects now of hosting a World Cup and taking over Paris Saint-Germain to improve the name of Qatar or Saudi Arabia doing the same with Newcastle United. It's more that these two guys have this French sports property, which is becoming part of the French uh, patrimoine, the kind of national, it's a national treasure, but it doesn't actually produce much revenue directly, except for the newspapers. Simon, so, mean, with all of that in mind, and Alex describing this, and you talking about this as a turning point, what then is the difference between the sort of pre-war tour and the post-war tour, between tour as it had been initially built up with that element of village fate about it and what it became after the war? I think if you'd been to the tour in sort of 1910 and then you went back in 1950, it would be quite similar. It would still be a village fete. You would still be able to, you know, rock up free. You wouldn't be able to see it on TV. You know, there, there might be a bit more in the cinemas, but essentially it was an event that you had to be there for. And then you'd buy the newspaper the next day. So it doesn't hugely change. Mm -hmm. And it goes through a period of state uh, ownership and licensing to Amaury and Godet. And eventually, over time, you know, as Amaury grows his empire, he becomes the uh, sole owner of the tour. But really, the, the change in the tour comes a bit with television. But even there, you know, it's mostly in, for the first couple of decades, it's French state TV paying not very much money for the rights. So the oddity of the tour is it. It's up to 80% of the cycling economy. But to this day, it's not worth anything like the money of, say, well, football, obviously, but not even like the Indian Premier League and cricket, because mm. it's just hard to catch the value of it. And of course, it's practitioners 
just don't make anything like the same amount of money, do they, as, as even a kind of journeyman footballer? Yeah, it's not very well paid at all. So the business model becomes, once it's televised in France and then more internationally, the Amoli family, which continue to own it long past the death of the, the, the kind of founding father of the clan, Emilien Amoli, he dies of a, in a horse riding accident in 1977. The family continues to own it and they essentially monopolize the money. So uh, what they get is TV rights money and they get sponsorship or advertising money from television largely. And so they're taking out 20 million euros a year, a lot of the last uh, couple of decades, which is, you know, very nice if you can have that. But they don't really pay the teams hardly anything. You know, some years they give the teams on like 50,000 euros each and they get a few free hotel rooms. It barely covers the petrol to drive the team car around France. Mm -hmm. So the teams get ripped off and the team business model is you find a sponsor you know, like like Sky for uh, the British team in recent years, where the sponsor's name gets advertised on television to the watching millions around the world. But often these sponsors are pretty small-time companies. They stick with it two or three years. They get disaffected if the riders lose or if the riders and the team turn out to be doped. So the teams come and go. I mean, it's not like football clubs, which have immense stability and often have survived. You know, most football clubs in England today have survived for well over a century. Cycling teams often just live for a couple of years here and there, and they, they live very hands to mouth. And according to Alex Duff in the book, a domestique, a kind of low-grade cycler who works for the team leader, might earn just sixty thousand euros a year. I mean, okay, it's double about the average European wage, but it's not what you'd expect in such a grueling sport where a career might only last a few years. And it is the grueling nature of it, I suppose, that's made it such a famous race and you mentioned their doping and doping scandals obviously that's not great for the business model if the race becomes discredited as it did for a, a significant patch but of course this was going on from the very very early days wasn't it I mean there's that wonderful detail that you remark on of the riders getting up and drinking a quart of wine before they go off in the morning and eating amphetamines like candy so it's sort of baked into the race isn't it yeah, and from the start, it wasn't seen as an issue. I mean, it becomes more of an issue when uh, Tommy Simpson die, a British rider dies going up a mountain in 1968. And, uh, you know, he has been um, taking a lot of drugs. But it was quite standard for, you know, people to inject themselves with heroin and other sort of rather amateurish forms of doping that are not the best way to enhance your performance. But, you know, it was a sort of amateurish race with amateurish medical support and the turning point is in 1998 this Belgian horse doctor Willy Fuchs is arrested in a car that's completely stuffed with all sorts of drugs that intended for the riders and Fuchs admitted that he gave himself I think a heroin injection that morning to get up and um, drive uh, on this or sleep so this is kind of how the tour is and it becomes a problem when it becomes much more than a French race, when the rest of the world, and especially the puritanical Anglo-Saxon get involved, they don't like this doping. They see it as cheating. And, you know, because of the Olympic doping scandals that we've had since the late 80s, we're all conditioned to see doping as wrong and bad. And in fact, the 
ephedrine that EPO used in the late 90s, early 2000s was extremely dangerous, you know, it would slow down the heart and uh, some cyclists would die in the night because their, their heartbeat was, uh, became so low. So from the late 90s, it becomes an issue. Everyone always suspects Lance Armstrong, the Texan rider who emerges at that time of doping. And so he wins the race seven straight times from 1999 on, always surrounded by these rumors of doping, which are often fed by race organizers to Lukeep. And he's not caught during his career. He's only finally caught in 2012. And so then the race really looks quite tarnished. Not just Armstrong, but many other guys who won the race turn out to have been doped. And people get a bit fed up with it. And it goes through a low for a few years before emerging somewhat in recent years. And I know you mentioned it in the piece. Of course, this is, you know, the Amory family and the descendants now of the original Amory are kind of furious about this. They don't want all these stories of doping going on. How does the sport sort of get cleansed? Is it is it a matter of kind of survival that it realizes it's just going to, its stock will just crash if it doesn't clean its act up? Yeah, you did have this old period where the family newspaper, L'Equipe, was publishing doping stories that were tarnishing the family's race, the Tour de France. And uh, Marie Odile, who's the widow of uh, Philippe, Philippe Amaury, the son, you know, tells her journalist at L'Equipe, I'm fed up of doping stories in the paper. She says this in 2008. Now, it's not so much, I think, that the race gets cleaned up. It's that doping probably does recede a bit, but it also becomes more discreet. So instead of ephedrine, which, you know, all the riders were taking and eventually becomes detectable. So a few years after the rider has taken it, they develop new tests and they manage to detect that he took EPO years before and they retrospectively strip him of his titles. Instead of that, you get more discrete forms now like blood doping and microdosing, which are hard to detect, especially if you take them out of season. And so we don't get as many doping scandals these days as we used to. And, you know, the cycling authorities have got a bit more serious about cracking down. I mean, in the Armstrong days, the guy controlled so much of the cycling industry and the cycling hierarchy that people at the top didn't dare to take him down. And what of the way that the race is going to develop, and particularly its sort of international appeal, from reading, you know, between the lines of your review, and between the lines of the book, you're kind of saying there's almost a struggle between this sort of, as you say, a French national treasure and something that knows it survives because of this enormous kind of global appeal. I wonder how that's going to develop in the future. Yeah, I mean, if you go back 50, 60 years, it was an obsession in, you know, the, the tour was an obsession in France, was even more of an obsession in Flanders. And, you know, there were Italians and Spaniards who really cared. So. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's not a global race in those days. So the British, for example, virtually ignore it for the first century. But it's very, very big in the places where it counts. And then what's happened in the last 20 years or so is it's gone global, but it's also become more niche. So a lot of Americans switched on during the Armstrong years. A lot of Brits switched on during the Bradley Wiggins and Chris Froome years. Some of those people have hung on like you, you know, how many British people in the past would have you know, taken a holiday around the Tour de France, but now there's quite a few. The Germans have got more interested. The Latin Americans are getting interested. So it's hard to find a country in the world where you can walk into a packed cafe of people watching the Tour de France. That doesn't really happen hardly at all. But there are a lot of places where there's a few nuts who will watch, you know, every stage. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm actually in the southern part of the Republic of Ireland and we are very near the Waterford, which is where Sean Kelly came from, the second greatest rider in history, a great winner of green jerseys and now a commentator. And I have to say, much like you see people in the park during Wimbledon knocking up, boy, the club cyclists go crazy around here, around the Tour de France, very hilly. And you see, an in so for club cycling, it's still a big, big thing, isn't it? Yeah, and it's become a sport for especially middle-aged people. And as more and more people become sort of exercise fanatics, cycling is a way to do that. And then they start hero-worshipping cyclists. I mean, there was a huge cult of Armstrong until it collapsed with, with people wearing those ridiculous yellow armbands with the message that you could beat cancer if you had the right attitude. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the, the kind of... Um, exercise obsession of our time is a boost to the Tour de France. Can I ask you one more question just about the book by Alex Duff? I mean, I, I was going to ask really if you were impressed by it. It sounds like he's a bit hamstrung by the story he's obliged to tell quite faithfully, but he gets pretty good access to the family himself. Yeah, he has more access than most of the Amoli, who are a very discreet family. And for me, the sections on the wartime background and on the family and how the family have resisted selling it for nearly 80 years are the high points of the book. The bit that doesn't work is he goes through each bid, each attempt by, you know, Rothschild Bank or B Sky B or a Chinese billionaire to buy into the race, to get a slice of the race, to turn the tour into part of a world series of cycling uh, so that the money would be spread much more widely and uh, new income streams would be found. And these bids sort of, they all fizzle out because the family doesn't want to sell. They're just not interested. Right. 
And so the book becomes a bit pointless. Um, you know, each bid is built up massively and then it doesn't go anywhere. So I really enjoyed the first half and then the second half about the bids, not so much. I feel like you've improved on it for us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very much so. That was really interesting. Thanks so much, Simon. And Le Grand Départ of the Tour de France is on Friday, the 1st of July. to come on the show, Nat Segnet walks us through the highways and byways of London's ultra-rich. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Now, do you have more than £1 million in disposable assets, excluding your main residence? Or do you happen to have £20 million? If you can honestly answer yes to either of these questions, then congratulations. You are what the financial world terms a high net worth individual, or even an ultra high net worth individual. This year's World Wealth Report tells us that the United Kingdom is home to more than 600,000 such individuals, and most of them live in London. That puts this city in the top five or thereabouts for high net worth individuals and possibly the number one spot for ultra high net worth individuals for the whole world. And it's no accident that this is the case, as Nat Segnet writes in this week's TLS. Now he joins us on the line to talk about the implications of this situation and the two books on the subject that he's reviewed for us. Nat. Hello. Hello. I'm, yes, I'm reaching you from my uh, yacht, which is moored uh, offshore on Teeb. Oh, snap. Um, I too yeah, am in my yacht. Yeah. And Alex, <laughs> I think, is in her yacht. I think we're all in our yachts, aren't no, we? No, I'm, I'm, I'm not in a yacht. I'm in a castle. Oh, <laughs> well, you're obviously just a high net worth individual, and we are ultra high net worth individuals. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I'm not sure I can talk to you. Okay. <laughs> well, that's, that's yeah. the first you know, one. No, I think we're going to come to that. an ultra, you, I'm simply not interested. There's definitely a social problem here, isn't there? I mean, but coming back to the basics of it, um, I mean, first of all, Matt, why is it no accident that London is full of these rich and ultra-rich folk? Well, the way Caroline Knowles explains it, it's because successive governments have passed up the opportunity, for instance, to restrict the sale of property to overseas buyers. And, you know, we know that from the gleaming empty towers at the end of my own street on the city road in central London, these 50-storey investment opportunities owned by rich people who never set foot in them. Um, this is Carol Knowles. This is um, in her book, Serious Money, isn't it? Perhaps we should say that. Serious Money, walking plutocratic London. 
That's right. It's her walking tour of the areas of London and the kind of plutocratic penumbra of it in the more in the bliggier parts of Surrey that uh, where vast amounts of wealth are either generated or spent or both. And I think the theory is, or I mean, it's a very hard to buy theory, is that that wealth is meant somehow to trickle down to the rest. Of the well, population. she she quotes that old Reaganite saw about a rising tide uh, lifting all boats, which of course is a is 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 a lie. A rising tide is all very well if you live in a super yacht or if you own one, but as any serious economist will attest, it's far more likely to drown the rest of us. Um, and that's what this book is about, really. It's a it is a somewhat sort of aghast account of hideous, appalling inequality, the entrenchment of privilege to the exclusion of the rest of us, and the effect that it has on the fabric of the city. Well, that's the thing. I think that's very striking to think about that word entrenchment you just used. It does seem like it's something that's that's shaping the fabric of London to a deep extent now, and and hence really her subtitle. Is that right? I mean, walking plutocratic London. What, what's with that? What's the idea? Well, yes, she starts off in Shoreditch, actually. So she starts off in an area of London, which, of course, was previously less than privileged, but has been transformed by the money coming from the neighbouring square mile. And then she walks west into more traditionally wealthy areas like Mayfair and Belgravia, where the more kind of boutique hedge fund and uh, private equity operations hide behind the um, elegant Georgian facades. And then on into places like Chelsea and Notting Hill, which are clearly more residential, but also kind of loci of extreme wealth. And I suppose what emerges most forcefully is how, A, she is excluded by this wealth. I mean, literally in the case of the sort of security arrangements that surround these luxury developments, but also because no one will speak to her, really, or, or at least she speaks to the factotums and the lackeys and the servants and the PAs and so forth, but not really to the possessors of this wealth. I mean, Ian Sinclair puts it, extremely well, which is that money is Trappist. It has taken a, a vow of silence because it has retreated behind these walls. Mm. I mean, while she's talking to the factotums, what are the rich and the ultra-rich actually up to? What are they doing? And what they're having a terrible they're having a terrible time <laughs> by, right. by all accounts. It is by Knowles's account at least, and she makes a pretty convincing case, deeply unfun to have loads of money. She talks to an assistant to a billionaire's son, for instance, who, who notes the suffocating vacuity and emptiness of these lives spent making social occasions, invariably with other identically aimless members of the super rich, last and shape the day. You know, you just go to parties all the time, which become this entirely recursive and exhausting means of establishing and maintaining one's status, one's right to be at those parties in the first place. And the spectre of transactionality hovers over all of these these lives are people just after my money engendering a kind of profound isolation made worse by the largely pointless security arrangements i mean these people hire ex special forces uh, soldiers to drive them to their hair appointments in blacked out suvs or to do pre-location sweeps of fancy restaurants it is a sort of again a kind of self-perpetuating system which sort of is characterized by an extreme paranoia of what might happen to this wealth and what does it represent to the people around me I'd rather just not know. Nat I was so interested at the beginning there you mentioned City Road before I shipped out to the countryside in Ireland I used to live on City Road I think not far from you actually right. and there was a kind of 
you know, lots of it was was lovely. There's this lovely Georgian housing stock, but bits of it were also quite sort of charmingly grotty and, down at heel, and yeah. un- undeveloped. It was down at heel. Bits of it were very shabby. And yeah. even, you know, before I left this, it's a long, long road, as, as many people will know, a big arterial road of the city. And towards it, it slopes down uh, towards the river eventually. And at its foot, suddenly this almost a different kind of city started to be built. That was happening when I still lived there. These extraordinary apartment blocks, hotels mm. with names like Lexicon and all sorts of sort of invented kind of marketing type names. But it's interesting that that is the fabric of the city. It's a reflection of what you're describing mm. as the, the social arrangements of the people who live or, or more importantly, perhaps don't live there. It did feel utterly sort of unapproachable and utterly alien to its surroundings. That's right, entirely screened off from its surroundings. And, you know, Knowles makes the point that um, the uh, inhabitants or non-inhabitants of these places never take public transport. They're driven everywhere. They're walled in by their entourages. They're zipped from Chelsea or Old Street to Monaco and Antibes by private jet without ever partaking in what she would argue is the defining pleasure of city life and one which she is insisting on herself in the very fact of this walking tour which is chance encounter with the textures of reality and so to be this rich is to be in permanent flight from reality and that's at the heart of as per her account at least the hollowness of extreme wealth so how exactly do people get into the i'm just asking for a friend you understand how do the rich and the ultra rich get into this fix in the first place Hmm. Well, I mean, speaking from personal experience myself, uh, I, I, I mean, again, it, it, it comes down to this sort of self-perpetuating closed system. If you manage to get your foot in the door as the young kind of quant or analyst in the city, then you enter a self-perpetuating system whereby wealth is being circulated amongst the wealthy few and never really making it out of the uh, into into the into the wider economy. So to give a more concrete example, if you're a hedge fund manager, you're likely to operate on the basis of a 2% fixed fee plus a 20% fee on the basis that your investment portfolio reaches a certain threshold. Even if it doesn't, however, 2% of a a multi-billion pound portfolio is a hell of a lot of money. But that money is essentially being circulated amongst your kind. And so I guess, you know, once you're in on it, you never really get out. And that comes with its attendant privileges and its attendant paranoias and right. isolation. So you're kind of it's That's part of it sort of comes from that world of um, of non-work in a way, doesn't it? Of kind of being what you, that lovely point you make in in your view about socially and economically useless activity. That's right. Generating classic. all this money, but only to be sort of shared among a very few people. Precisely. I mean, classic rent seeking. You know, that is what ultimately gives the lie to the old Reaganite platitude. Our boats are not rising. And meanwhile, because this is, I mean, I've enjoyed this so much, but uh, you've obviously reviewed a second book here, A yeah. Class of Their Own by Matt Knott. And that, I think, neatly takes us into what happens next, because it's not just about, obviously, one generation who live this quite strange, removed life while taking over the city it's also about their their children what's the subject of Matt Knott's book can you tell us a bit about it 
Okay, so uh, this is an account of the years that Matt Knott spent as a private tutor to the super rich. Obviously, a bright young man, Cambridge educated, highly personable, and a little bit aimless. So he kind of drifts into it because he's skint. But he finds that he's good at tutoring the offspring of the, of the super rich. But he swiftly begins to question what the point of it is. Um, you know, he describes it as a leg up to kids who don't need it. But just like those ridiculous security arrangements described in Caroline Knowles' book, private tutoring is understood by this wealthy class as indispensable. You know, your kid is already at Collet Court or Francis Holland or some other highly expensive prep school, but you need extra one-on-one tuition because how else are they going to get into Eton or St Paul's in the face of mounting international competition from super prepared kids from Hong Kong or Moscow or Doha. It's a kind of arms race, or it is on the one hand. On the other hand, like so much in this world, it's a status parade. Not tells a fun anecdote about being on a plane from Moscow to Miami. He's been retained by the family of a Russian oligarch. And because there are forest fires polluting the air above the family dasher, they all decamp to West Palm Beach for the summer. And on the plane, the oligarch's wife leans over to the family art dealer, because obviously you wouldn't go on holiday without your art dealer, would you? Uh, Leans over to him and says, you know Matt went to Cambridge. So Matt not as this kind of branded accessory, much like his employer's Gucci handbag. And I mean, as Knott says, there was no point unless the brand name was prominently displayed. I was going to ask you, what are the kids like? I mean, what do they, they're just children. They obviously know no different but they must surely, this must have a huge impact on how they develop. That's absolutely right. Um, much of the book is concerned with Knott's tutoring of, a, of a, a sweet boy called Felix, who's the son of a rotter, horrible, entitled, rude money bags with his entirely transactional wife. And Felix is just not cut out. He does not have the intellectual chops to get into St Paul's. And it's it's rather moving, this story of a, of a materially privileged, emotionally impoverished childhood. The kid denied his rightful sense of freedom and curiosity, as Not puts it. Everything is cast as a competition. This mindset that would, as Not says, colour not only the rest of their lives, but anyone else they encountered. So he comes to realise that tutoring the kids of the super rich is not about expanding their horizons it's not really about educating them. it is about maintaining the status quo that unfair advantage that will see these children the next generation irrespective of their abilities inherit you know the hollow wealth that Noel sees emptying out and sterilizing swathes of london it is a main maintenance of the status quo that's really interesting i wonder if that's if it's i use i used the word removed earlier but it seems that that kind of status game has this, this viral effect for the rest of society, doesn't it? In the, I mean, tell me if you agree. I'm just thinking that in the same way that the presence of the ultra-rich in London shapes the urban landscape, this sets the tone for everyone else. I mean, it's, yeah. it's university as a game that, as you said, they don't actually really need to play. Absolutely. And, you know, subjects them to what is, in some cases, an intolerable pressure. And that, mm. that's all cast into relief by another little strand in that story, which is that he ends up somewhat assuaging his conscience by volunteering at an academy and a former sixth school in Hackney, where he helps to conduct mock Oxbridge interviews with some of the more promising pupils there. And, you know, on the understanding that Oxbridge entrance is a straight up fight between kids like 
Felix, who've been preparing for this moment their whole lives, and those like uh, you know a girl called Fatima, who he ends up tutoring, who are thrown in at the deep end. And you know Fatima is the daughter of parents born in a tiny village in, in Turkey, who clearly has all the intellectual equipment, but lacks what a private education is there to instill self-confidence. You know, her school had never had a pupil apply to Oxbridge, let alone get in. I mean, there is a happy ending to that story, but it's, uh, it's a, a powerful counterexample to the stories of the wealthy that the book is otherwise concerned with. I'm wondering, um, clearly both of these books were written and published almost before recent events. So what happens yeah. when there's a kind of external disruption? So if, you know, a lot of the Russian oligarchs, for example, their materials, their existence in London has materially, politically, socially changed. I wonder what happens when something like that occurs. I mean, it must mm. completely, completely change the landscape, however briefly. Well, there is a glimmer at the end of uh, Knowles's book of a different, fairer sort of London. Um, you know, she talks of wealth taxes finally being on the political agenda, HMRC launching its investigations into tax evasion. She begins to foresee at least a more socially just politics of the city, you know, tackling wasteful consumption, addressing the unequal tax system to fund new green spaces, affordable housing, cultural facilities, uh, etc. But, you know, we can't help but take this with a bit of a pinch of salt. You know, she acknowledges there are huge obstacles to change, not least the, the lawyers and PR professionals at the service of the wealthy. Um, you know, what seems more likely is, is the continuing entrenchment, the continuing segregation of the rich into their secure physical spaces, unencumbered by social obligation and the rest of us struggling for air. And I mean, she uses Grenfell as, you know, a totemic example of that, of the widening gap between rich and poor in the city. So it's hard to derive much hope from either of these, these books. Well, Nat, I was going to close by, by making some really fatuous point about how <laughs> having £20 million in disposable assets in the bank didn't sound so bad to me. Um, <laughs> I still find myself strangely drawn to it, don't you? But I think that's far too fatuous after all this, um, you know, well, no, but, you, but, but, but Michael, you're you're making you know an Im, Im, important point. I just, however, fatuously, I don't I don't <laughs> think is, but you know the point is you know, it's it's again the old the old sore, isn't it? I've been poor and I've been rich, and I know which is is better. You there know, we are. Yeah. It, it would be very hard to think of actually turning away that money. Of course, if all these people are as unhappy as, as it's portrayed, they could obviously give it away. And it's hard to think of finding someone who's really struggling, who wouldn't who wouldn't at least want a shot at making a happy life with a bit more yeah, yes. money, isn't I, I always, it? I always imagine that if we, you know, if, if you this sort of landed up somehow on your plate, if that ball came loose in the ruck, as our prime minister says, um, <laughs> that we'd all somehow handle it so much better. And yet yes. we probably wouldn't. It is, it, I suppose, in some senses, it is a soothing read if you ever lain awake at night cursing yourself for not being an ultra high net worth individual. You, know, you can take some sucker from the fact that you're not um, isolated by the smoke glass screens of your bulletproof SUV. Uh, I'm are. making certain assumptions about you two, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like two books we should both really read. Um, yeah. Anyway, thank you very much indeed, Nat, for joining us and talking about the ultra rich. A great pleasure. Thank you for having me.
that's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Simon Cooper and Nat Segnet. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Michael Keynes and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.